got a smartphone, you're already constantly surrounded by people documenting their own experience and experiencing the world a little bit as a photographic background. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Unless you are living under a particularly out-of-touch rock, you've probably heard of the immersive Van Gogh craze that is currently sweeping the globe. In a sign of our strange times, the 19th century Dutch painter best known for the vibrating intensity of his paintings and the tragic circumstances of his life, including what one Washington Post writer called, quote, the whole ear thing, he has now become the man of the hour as we begin to limp our way out of the pandemic with high-tech glorified light shows dedicated to his legend popping up everywhere from Naples to Paris to New York City to places like Las Vegas and Kansas City where you might not naturally expect a post-impressionist to draw frenzied crowds. But he does. So what is going on? And what does this all mean? To discuss, I'm very happy to have Artnet News chief art critic Ben Davis back on the show to demystify things in classic Ben Davis fashion. But before that, however... I would like to welcome onto the show a very special guest. In fact, in my opinion, the most special guest to have ever graced the art angle. Her name is Saya Goldstein. Thanks very much for coming on the art angle, Mom. Thank you for having me. So when did you first hear about the whole immersive Van Gogh phenomenon? I think it must have been sometime in February when I saw an ad on Facebook. And I said to myself, okay, that looks like pretty safe kind of a thing to do. So I ended up getting tickets. And I'm looking forward to going to see it on next week on the 22nd. So there are a lot of different editions of this Van Gogh immersive experience. How did you decide which one to go to? I did not know there were more than one. And actually, I was very pleased when somebody who knows about these things told me that the immersive Van Gogh is the one to see, that there are some replicas going around that may not be quite as good. Just by sheer luck, I think I got the sort of original, which is the immersive Van Gogh. So there's been a lot of demand for these tickets. Was it difficult to get one? No, because I was so early. I got mine on February 22nd, and I got one of these premium flex tickets because I was afraid that if it is timed so exactly, and I have to take the subway and walk and do all of that stuff to get there, that I may not get there exactly on time and then have to deal with some kind of a problem of being late. So I have the premium flex ticket, which allows me, I think, two hours each way from that time to get entrance. My mom is very practical and organized, as you may have just heard. I thought it might be nice to have you on the show today because around the Artnet offices, it's become kind of a thing that all of our moms are very excited to go see an immersive Van Gogh show. 
It's like an epiphenomenon around the Van Gogh phenomenon in its own right. And actually, one of the shows has invoked this in their advertising campaign, saying, go, spelled G-O-G-H, with your mom. So do you have any idea why it's so popular with moms? I do, actually. As my son was growing up, he had this starry night on his wall. And as my daughter was growing up, she had Van Gogh's bedroom on her wall. And I remember when, I think we're in Paris, I think Musée d'Orsay, where the Van Gogh's bedroom original is actually on display. Many, many years ago on spring break, we were there and we had to take a photograph of my daughter standing next to the original that she had over her bed for so many years. So I sort of feel that Van Gogh is our home artist. So I thought that that might be a fun thing to go to see, especially I'm looking forward to being in that room. I have to ask, are you going to take me with you, considering that I am your only son? I would love to take you with me. In fact, you probably will know a lot about all these paintings. So thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Mom. Okay, thank you. It was my pleasure. Okay, now let's go to Ben Davis, Artnet News Chief Art Critic, Art Angle Regular. As our listeners know, you're an expert on a wide range of very serious art topics, and yet over the course of the pandemic, it seems you've been finding yourself writing about some pretty wacky stuff, actually. You know, recently there was Beeple, the NFT boom, and now you're going to these Van Gogh immersive light show experiences. So how do you feel about all this? Well, like everybody else, like your mom, like my mom, I'm, I'm excited to be out in the world again. And amongst art lovers and the art curious, this is one of the ways that that excitement to be out in the world again is expressing itself. How big a phenomenon is this burgeoning immersive Van Gogh industry anyway? I think that it may be one of the biggest art phenomena of all time, because this is a global phenomenon. There are immersive Van Goghs all around the world. And in the United States, in something like 40 cities, you can go to an immersive Van Gogh experience of some kind. And... There are five different companies, by my count, competing for the Immersive Van Gogh dollar. There's Immersive Van Gogh, the one that your mom's going to, and then Van Gogh, the Immersive Experience, and then Beyond Van Gogh, the Immersive Experience, and Imagine Van Gogh, the Immersive Exhibition, and Van Gogh Alive. And they all offer different permutations on the same core idea, which is a room full of animated light projections of the paintings of Vincent van Gogh. So that sounds a little bit confusing. They all sound like they pretty much have basically the same name or very similar names. How are people able to tell these things apart? Well, in some cases they can't. As a matter of fact, I count myself as one of them because when I first was assigned to write about this, I knew that these were very hot tickets and selling out very fast. I rushed to the internet, Googled immersive van Gogh, bought tickets before realizing that I bought Tickets to Van Gogh, the Immersive Experience, the rival Van Gogh show here in New York. I had to go back and buy tickets for the other one, but it's fine because I wanted to see both of them for the purposes of writing about it anyways. So it is difficult. As a matter of fact, there have been dozens of complaints filed with the Better Business Bureau 
to the point where they issued a alert to consumers saying, no, before you go, you better make sure you're getting the Van Gogh immersive experience that you wanted. Because one of the things that really kicked this phenomena into overdrive during the pandemic was that on the loved and loathed Netflix series, Emily in Paris, one of the episodes features Emily going in the Paris version of the Van Gogh immersive experience room. And that seems to be really what inspired a lot of people. So you will read a lot of moms in their complaints and in the coverage of this little dust up saying that they had really hoped to give their daughter the real immersive Emily in Paris Van Gogh experience. And they felt cheated when they found out they were getting a rival. So I guess, Andrew, if your mom didn't think to buy you a ticket, it might be because you're you're not a huge Emily in Paris fan. That's true. I have to admit, I stopped watching about halfway through. <laughs> so considering that these are all based on the same principle, if I'm correct, which is that you have projections of Van Gogh's art displayed in these fairly cavernous environments that you're able to walk through. What are the distinctions? Are there distinctions that have any particular weight and importance, or are they pretty much all basically the same? Well, I think it's pretty interesting to compare them, actually, because you can see that there are better and worse ideas within them. So in my assessment, I think the immersive Van Gogh experience is a little better than the Van Gogh, the immersive experience. The central part of them is an animated selfie environment. You can definitely sense that because there's such hot competition that they're all trying to crank things up and add different stuff that you get going to the show. So the immersive Van Gogh experience, for instance, brought in the production designer from Hamilton, David Corins, who has added a lot of drama to the setting on Pier 36, where the show is. There's an enormous sized replica of a self-portrait of Van Gogh where, you know, the paint strokes are big enough to dip your hand into that you come upon right when you come into the show. And that show, in addition to having the immersive environment, which also contains some giant and perplexing mirrored structures that I'm not sure what they're for, but they add a little bit of texture to the experience or different angles and places to take photos against. In addition to that kind of decor, they have also have an augmented reality feature where you can point your camera and see a Van Gogh painting conjured in front of you as if it was really hanging there. They have a personal greeting playing on a big screen from Lily Collins, the actress from Emily in Paris. They have a booth dedicated to the phenomenon of chromesthesia that, according to lore, Van Gogh had where people can hear colors that allows you to step into a different color and they try and illustrate what, you know, violet or yellow might have sounded like to him. And then there is an artificial intelligence Van Gogh aspect where you can text or you can write online a letter to Van Gogh and they claim to have scanned his letters and have the artificial intelligence Van Gogh write back to you what he might have said and then you can go to the gift shop and get it printed out on old-timey paper so you can role-play having a correspondence with a depressed post-impressionist artist. And then the other one, Van Gogh, The Immersive Experience, has its own set of extras. So there's a three-dimensional sculptural walk-in version of Van Gogh's bedroom at Arles. There is 
a giant sculpture of a vase that has projections of different Van Gogh still lifes on it. So it sort of seems like there's this huge light up sculpture that's changing between different bouquets of flowers in it. There is a drawing room where children can color in Van Gogh and then have scanned into a computer that shows them big on the wall. And then on the other side, there's a virtual reality experience it takes you through a day in the life of the painter and you float through a landscape and then picture frames will appear and frame portions of the landscape that slowly inside the painting frame, the Van Gogh painting based on that. So I guess it gives you a sense of, you know, how the paintings relate to real or in this case, virtual landscapes. I've been to a lot of exhibitions over the years. I've seen pretty much every permutation of an exhibition that you can think of, but I have no idea exactly what you're describing here because you're talking about, you know, a Hamilton set designer creating sonography and sets for this experience, but it's not a Broadway musical. It's not a biopic about Van Gogh. You're, you're talking about certain artworks that are famous from his oeuvre, but it doesn't seem like there are any artworks that are actually present there. It seems like there are some things that remind me of a children's museum or maybe a science museum. So is it an exhibition? What kind of show is it? Well, you know, there are marketers who have a name for things like this. That's artertainment. I don't know. It doesn't roll off the tongue, but it's a useful category for some kind of space that's opening up between art and entertainment that contains aspects of both. And this is definitely that. And it is a very curious thing. And, well, it's not a totally new idea. I mean, I went to a immersive Hieronymus Bosch exhibit a few years ago that I thought was actually pretty spooky and fun. But there definitely seems to be a growing hunger for this kind of event that orbits art, but isn't necessarily of art. You're right. There are no original Van Gogh works in it. At one of them, they have sort of framed paintings that are like printed out, but they're like printed out on this really kind of flat canvas. And it's so perplexing to me to walk through this educational hallway of information about Van Gogh with this like simulated gallery of his paintings and they're just totally flat. This painter who's like known for like the physicality of his painting seemed to me so emblematic of the whole theory behind it that it's not just that you're taking his artwork and then turning it into these animated experiences but also that they're also presenting with replicas of them that are completely flat that already reduce them to an image in some kind of a way. You said the word artertainment, which I've never heard before, but it reminds me of another term I have heard, which is edutainment. Is there any kind of educational component to it? Does somebody who walks through this show leave edified with a deeper understanding of Van Gogh and his work? Yes, but it's surprisingly light. Actually, that's what really strikes me about these shows because there is a sort of a pretense of a little lesson about Van Gogh. In the immersive Van Gogh, it's actually mostly contained within this hallway. That's where you wait. Like if you're in the overflow crowd and it's at capacity, then you can read about Van Gogh. And the other one actually, uh, Van Gogh, the immersive experience, it has, a, like I said, a room of simulated paintings by Van Gogh. And it has, you know, information about his life that walks you through the typical beats. But it's really actually surprisingly light on the kind of educational 
aspect and clearly not the center of what they're selling. And I'll say that something I find really striking about it when I try and think about it in relationship to the contemporary conversations that are going on within museums is that one of the things that's happened in contemporary museums is that biography is everything. That curators, museum directors, people thinking about audience development, is this an interesting person? Is it telling an interesting biography that people can relate to? And that's really dominating the way people think about art in museums right now and how people present art in museums. And here you have Van Gogh. I mean, of course, his paintings are very iconic and famous and beloved. But he's also someone who there's a huge mythology about his life. I mean, that's part of how he became the figure he is. I, I did a little research project on artist biopics a few years ago, and he is by far the most biopicked of all artists. The story of Van Gogh is this tortured figure who suffers for his art and is ignored by society. And there's a thin line between, you know, the, the depression and, and darkness that consume him and the genius and radiance of his art. That's all been so much a part of how the public processed Van Gogh and why he's this paradigm of modern artists. And that's so striking to me that so little of that biography is present in these shows, particularly in the light show parts. If you know Van Gogh's legend, which I guess I would think that they're kind of assuming maybe that it's just so well known that they don't have to go back into it. But you kind of get the contours of it. You know, you see these images, you know, big self-portraits of Van Gogh, the starry night brought to life, the sunflowers. If you know his story, you know that when you see Wheatfield with crows come along that you're towards the end. But it's really in the background. So I just think that's a very striking thing about how the conversation is pulling in two different directions. In one sphere, it's like people are pressing the button of biography as much as possible. And then this totally other sphere, which is commanding huge audiences, it's totally the opposite. It's taking something that was known for its biography and kind of like just taking it on to another place. I also want to say that there's a very practical reason why we're seeing so many Van Gogh shows right now. And I believe this is the case. What does the copyright on his art have to do with any of this stuff? Well, I do think that's a big part of it, that it's up for grabs, that he's both well-known and beloved, and people can grab the images and remix them, do what they want to do with them. And then you combine that with the fact that from the 80s was just the symbol of the art market. So much money is paid for Van Gogh paintings, and the originals are like some of the most seen works in the world. And the Van Gogh Museum in Tell recently was the most visited single artist museum in the world. Incidentally, it was briefly topped by Team Lab, a group of artists who are Japanese who make immersive entertainment. <laughs> so as a symbol of sort of the way the changing audience for art. But in this kind of disjunction in value between the fact that the artworks themselves are so famous and so rare and then the fact that the images of them can circulate very freely, really in that space between those two facts, these kinds of experiences are entering the conversation. And I've heard people, museum people say, literally just like, 
I'm a small regional museum. I, I couldn't afford a Van Gogh show, but I can afford this and people will definitely come to it. So there's been a tons of press about this immersive Van Gogh phenomenon. There's also been a lot of some uh, really critical shade thrown at it. In particular, you know, the excellent New York Times critic Jason Farrago wrote a really witty evisceration of the show as being basically pablum for babies. The opening of his review said this is pretty much tailor-made for babies. And he suggests that fans looking for immersive Van Gogh experiences should go to MoMA and, you know, admire the impasto on Starry Night and have this engagement with the true original. And it's interesting because, you know, you think everything else around us in our lives is, uh, is very digitally enabled. We're, we're living in this um, highly future shock kind of period of going into the 21st century. Some people maybe don't go into so much of a rapture around paint smeared on a sheet of canvas as they once did. But do you think that he's right, that there is greater experience and greater virtue to be found in the original paintings? Or do you think that there's something that is being missed, or is this not even the conversation that's being had? It's hard to be somebody who is invested in museums and the museum experience and not be a little salty about the whole thing, because it is kind of like taking Starry Night, which is so famous for its suggestion of movement, and then animating it, like doing the imagining for you. Or, you know, there's a part in the immersive Van Gogh show where there's kind of mournful music that plays and Van Gogh's painting, The Potato Eaters, appears, which is his painting of really poor peasants. And it's like kind of jarring to see something that, you know, has been valued for so long for, you know, the intense connection Van Gogh felt for the dispossessed and to see it turned into kind of animated wallpaper. It's really hard. It's not a show necessarily for art connoisseurs, but I have to fight that impulse because I just think that people forget that there are new people entering these spaces all the time, the space of art, that is. I don't actually think that it's one or the other, that you like these things or you like the original paintings. For some people, it might be. But I also think that for some people, it's going to be their entry point into Van Gogh. And that happens all the time. This is a very postmodern thing to say, but I don't know if people ever have an unmediated experience of Van Gogh. Particularly not today, when, like your mom said, like there's a poster of Van Gogh on your childhood wall, Andrew. And that's certainly part of why you became interested in art and why you think Van Gogh is so special. So I don't know if this actually takes away from it. The reproductions, the discourse around things, the new kinds of things that people do with art are constantly part of how art is being reanimated for for new people. And that can certainly, you know, devalue aspects of them. But there was a Dutch painting of a bird, the goldfinch, that became the title of a book and then a pretty bad movie a few years ago. And, you know, that created a whole new audience for that painting you know, that enters into its legend and kind of puts it in front of a new kinds of people. The high art and, and, and the media around high art penetrate each other much more than people who invested in policing that border admit. And the Van Gogh immersive experience is literally a symbol of how the media around 
something penetrates into the legend of the thing itself. It's kind of funny because Van Gogh, the Impressionists, post-Impressionists were kind of, you know, they were competing with technology. They were kind of trying to differentiate themselves from technology. And then you have a lot of artists today, like Team Lab, that are actually running very much in the opposite direction, where they're trying to embrace technology and they're creating this kind of new genre of experiential art that before the pandemic was really like the big, hot, new thing with Super Blue um, doing its kind of venture capital-backed frontiers of immersive art exploration and something like the Carnian Arena experienced by the film director Inaritu that created a sensation. And then the pandemic came and that kind of obviously, you know, put a kibosh on these experiences. But, you know, with the Van Gogh thing being such a phenomenon that it is, do you think that as we get out of the pandemic that these experiences are just going to come roaring back? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that's certainly why they're partly so popular now. I mean, the people have been inside and want to go do something that feels like you had to be there. This is like marketed as exactly that. You know, during the pandemic, there was a study by Culture Track about what people wanted from the post-COVID museum. And by far, the number one answer was escapism and something to take your mind off your worries, something to do with kids, something beautiful were the top answers. And this is that. And it's just interesting because that study was about what people wanted from a post-COVID museum. And none of this is happening, or very few of these are happening through museums. It's all happening in these kind of pop-up spaces by these experience companies, I guess I'd call them, who are leaning into that. We once had the futurist Doug Stevens on The Art Angle, and he likes to quote a venture capitalist named Chris Dixon, who says, quote, the future often starts out looking like a toy. Is this a flash in the pan that we're going to see a couple of these things happen and then maybe we'll go back to normal? Or do you think that we're going to be seeing new art and old art appearing more and more in these kinds of immersive formats? Well, I tend to think that the immersive Van Gogh and its popularity represents something that's already happened, not something that's happening, something that's already happened, which is that the kind of experience it is, which is where you immerse yourself in it as you're there, you let it wash over you, but you're also photographing it, photographing yourself in it, and then using it as a backdrop and talking with your friends about it. That's all very conversant and representative of how people already experience art. If you've got a smartphone, you're already constantly surrounded by people documenting their own experience and experiencing the world a little bit as a photographic backdrop. So this like leans into a way of thinking about being with art that is already happening. Another culture track study from a little while ago has a quote that runs something to the effect of like, there is no high and low art anymore. There's only relevant and irrelevant. And I think that's pretty true. People have been saying variations of that for a really long time, but I think on a new level, in a new way, people really want to be part of the experience. And there's an entire contemporary thing where the meta level, the documentation, the conversation around a cultural object becomes part of the text itself. 
the audience's desire, Ben's ability to express itself, reaches into the text and makes it into a new text. I think that this is part of that. The kind of things that at a place like the Museum of Modern Art, they do as an extra. You know, I went to a show a few years ago that was this Congolese artist and these very intricate paper sculptures of imagined cities. And MoMA had a virtual reality experience that accompanied it where you could walk through the city as if it were a real city. And that was like an add-on or a plus. But more and more, those things, the add-ons, the educational extras, the bonus, moves to the center of the picture and becomes the experience itself, which creates these kind of new, interesting, and unsettling fusions. Because then, you know, who's the artist there? You know, there's the artist who made the paper sculptures, who's the center of the show. And then there's this second order thing that's this virtual landscape of it that's sort of based on him, but authored by another person. And there are all kinds of questions about what the center of the aesthetic experience is then. So just in closing, do you think that you get enough Vincent for your scent? Should people go to the immersive Van Gogh experience or should they uh, wait for something better to come along? I think it's a pleasant afternoon. I think that depending, it's an exaggeration a lot about a lot of things people hate about the Contemporary Museum. I mean, the gift shop at these things is almost as large as the as the experience itself with every brand of Van Gogh, Tchotchke. I give one a B and one like a C. I think it's charming and pleasant. Like if someone took me there on a date, I'd go on a second date with them, but I might be very interested to joust about it afterwards over drinks. If that makes any sense. This is your new uh, your new rating system <laughs> for shows. Well, I, for one, uh, am looking forward to the immersive Mondrian experience, maybe uh, one of these days. But thanks very much for coming back on the show, Ben. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. And if you have some feedback or maybe a recommendation for a future episode or some questions for my mom, go ahead and email us at podcasts at artnet.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at A-R-T-N-E-T dot C-O-M. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week.